General Jim Mattis, 40 years in the U.S. Marine Corps. <clears throat> How do you keep improving as a leader to meet the demand of each role in your career? We all get promoted, you have different roles to play. How do you stay teachable as a leader? I think the most important thing here, uh, Joel, is that you have to assume you must keep improving. If you make that your decision, that you must improve, if you look at every week in the Marine Corps as your last week of peace, and you must be better at the end of this week as a warfighter, then you'll push yourself on your three-mile run down to 18 minutes, and you'll accept no excuses. You'll push yourself 21 pull-ups, and you'll accept no excuses. You'll push yourself to read the Commandant's reading list. You'll push yourself that when the things are going tough in the field, you keep your spirit up, and you're the man everyone can turn to, knowing that you don't give up. And you just keep improving every day with the assumption that if you're going to lead more Marines in the future as you get promoted, they expect you to be the physically toughest, the mentally sharpest, and the spiritually just the uh, most undiminished person, that nothing, not cold, not rain, not enemy situation, not frustrating rules can get you down. And you just maintain this body, mind, and spirit improvement at all times. You stay teachable most by reading books by reading what other people went through. I can't tell you the number of times I looked down at what was going on on the ground or I was engaged in a fight somewhere and I knew within a couple of minutes how I was gonna screw up the enemy. And I knew it because I'd done so much reading. I knew what I was going to do because I'd seen other similar situations in the reading. I knew how they'd been dealt with successfully or unsuccessfully. And so long as you continue along this line, as long as you remember, somebody on the other side is watching, hoping that you're not at the top of your game, that you're not reading, that you're not working out, that you're not strong spiritually, then they're going to think they've got you. You want to always be the toughest, the sharpest out there. Welcome back to the podcast. I have a great episode for you guys with former U.S. Marine combat veteran Yusef Badu. He has a very interesting story and path, and um, the entire episode we get into the details of that, which I think you guys will appreciate. Before we start, I would just like to quickly talk about uh, my buddies, uh, the Marsoc 3. Uh, I did an entire episode on that. It's episode 148. If you haven't listened to it already, go please check it out. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Allen West, U.S. Army combat veteran, and he served the state of Texas uh, for a short while as a politician. Uh, he wrote a letter on their behalf. Um, I will link that to the episode 148 in the bio. Um, essentially, the letter is talking about the situation and um, asking to raise funds to help with the defense of these Marines. Um, essentially, the entire incident was caught on camera. So the fact that it's gotten to this point is kind of ridiculous. Um, we need to raise $463,000 to help uh, pay for legal fees uh, for these three Marines. 
Um, I highly encourage uh, the listeners to check the story out if you haven't already. Like I said, it's episode 148. You can check out UAP, United American Patriots. They're heavily involved. Uh, They have a website, a, a social media as well. You can also contribute. Uh, they have coins and shirts and art prints done by Ben Cantwell. You can check out the link at born to the number two serve.co slash shop. So that's born to serve.co slash shop. And it's the Marsak three coin uh, with the Lady of Justice. Uh, the artwork is done by Ben Cantwell. It's fantastic. You can check him out on Instagram as well. There's also a fundraiser on greenwolftactical.com. Check them out as well. They have different items. It's all limited edition. All the profits from this go to helping uh, with the defense of these three Raiders. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special guest on for this podcast. Uh, his name is Yusuf Badu. He is the founder of Emergence, uh, a company that trains for situational awareness and behavioral analysis. Um, he is also a combat veteran of the United States Marine Corps. Yusuf, how's it going, brother? Hey, it's fantastic, John. Semper Fi, and thanks for having me on, my friend. Yeah, thank you for coming on. And, um, you know, when we first connected... Uh, I had mentioned to you that I um, I saw about 20 minutes of your podcast on the, the Mike Drop podcast for Mike Ritland. Yeah, Mike Ritland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and typically, um, whenever I have a guest on, I try not to uh, watch or listen to a podcast that they've done previously, if I can help it. Um, yep. I feel like it kind of affects the way I approach it. Um, so about 20 minutes in, I was like, you know, there's a chance that maybe one day I'll talk to this guy in the podcast. So let me stop watching now. <laughs> you want to save all the good stuff for the yeah. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man. So you have a, a very unique, uh, background and sort of path and, and up to where you're at now. Um, so if we can talk, I'd like to sort of go back to the beginning um, you know, in regards to being a, a Marine Corps combat veteran, you have a unique background. Um, so can we talk about your upbringing a little, upbringing a little bit and, and what led you to the Marine Corps? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody uh, usually wants to hear this. And um, basically how it started is my mom's American, my dad's Kuwaiti. So I was basically born in Kuwait uh, a lot of years ago. And I basically lived there for my adolescent life all the way until I was about 15 or 16 years old. And then I moved to Michigan. So in that time in Kuwait, during my adolescence, I was there for the Gulf War, the Iraq War, uh, when they had invaded Kuwait. We were there for about four weeks while Iraq had invaded the country. And we were kind of hiding in our houses till eventually we got uh, smuggled out by Canadians, which is a whole nother story. But yeah, that's why Canadians always got a special place in my heart. Nice. Um, so that was exposure to war and that kind of thinking at a very early age, about six years old. Um came here to Michigan uh, when I moved here with my mom and to high school, I always kind of knew I, I was going to join the military, not just the Marine Corps. But imagine being a six, seven-year-old kid watching the Iraq, Iraqi tank divisions rolling up in the highway. And 
I was just a kid in the candy store. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world, you know, right. um, looking back, that's probably a little strange, but it definitely shows you my trajectory, <laughs> uh, the trajectory of my life. So, um, so ahead. you, do you speak Arabic? Yeah. Yeah. So I speak really, really bad Arabic. Okay. okay. Just like <laughs> I speak really, really bad English. Um, <laughs> Growing up, uh, my mom was American, and people are always surprised to hear that, but Kuwait's full of Americans and British that are dual citizens, as a lot mm. of us. So I would grow up, I grew up in my house speaking to my mom in English. We'd have like a three-way conversation. I'd be speaking to my mom in English. Uh, I would answer her in English. My dad would ask a question in Arabic. I'd answer him in Arabic. She'd say something to my dad, you know. So my friends would come over, and their brains would melt out of their eyeballs. <laughs> um, so that carried over onto my infantry deployment uh, with the Marine Corps, because again, I speak kind of gutter slang Arabic. It's definitely not the Queens English. And, but that's what worked out there in Iraq. And right. most people don't realize that Iraqis were, you know, 60, 70% illiterate in the proper Arabic, you know? So that was mm. definitely an advantage there. Uncle, uncle sugar got his old 10 pounds of flesh out of my butt. <laughs> so, okay. So what year did you join the Marine Corps? I joined the Marine Corps in, this was 2002. It was right after 9-11. Um, okay. I was in 10th grade. I was a sophomore when 9-11 happened. Watched it happen right on the TVs. And that, you know, if it wasn't already crystallized before, um, I joined in, in, in 2002. And I served 2002 to 2006 active duty with 1st Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion. So I'm like recon, but light armored, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so then sort of what makes this generation of uh, servicemen and women unique is from 2000 and on, when people signed up, they knew they were signing up for a wartime military. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, there is some uniqueness to that, you know, sort of understanding that there's a chance you may go to combat or... In a lot of cases, uh, a lot of folks wanted to go to combat and sort of test themselves and, and uh, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, spending time in Kuwait as a kid and, and understanding some of the customs and cultures uh, in Iraq, uh, mm -hmm. it can it can make for a more practical approach as, um, you know, a, a an army operating in a country where the language is different, the culture and customs are different, uh, that presents a unique set of challenges. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And you had that, you had, you know, a situation where, you know, for the longest time, John, you know, our the United States military has been, you know, training to defend the Fulda gap and, you know, big Russian invasion type tactics, mm -hmm. big conventional warfare. And then, you know, we all landed, that generation of us landed in the middle of the thing where it was, you know, the opposite of a conventional warfare. We had to rely on information. So any advantage you could have going into a situation like that is, is you know, that's just knowledge. And our battalion got super lucky. Uh, I don't even know how the stars aligned on this one. But in the beginning, you know, we didn't have Terps. We didn't have translators for everybody in the invasion of Iraq. Um, they had some at the division levels, you know, the big, big wigs had them, but the battalions didn't have them going forward. But luckily our battalion literally had three baked in Arab speakers. It wasn't just me. It was me, uh, another Marine named uh, Roger Sarah, who was actually an LAV mechanic. And then one of our MIMS clerked 
who was actually from Jordan. So we had a uh, mm. battalion with three ready-made Arabic speakers landing on the invasion. Yeah, and, and you would think, you know, at the command level, they have people who can speak it, but you would think they would have guys on the ground with those kind yeah. of skills to make things work better and smoother, right? You'd think, yeah, you'd think. And then, like, obviously it developed over the time of uh, the OAF-2 and OAF-3 where obviously we started getting the interpreters, but then you ran into where they where they would source Iraqi interpreters, Iraqi locals, and they were great people. A lot of them, a lot of them are American citizens today, um, yeah. did a lot of great with them, but you know, uh, there's certain situations where you can't use, you know, a host country national for certain things. So uh, an American Arabic speaker at any point in time in that military was a very, very useful resource. Absolutely. Um, I remember uh, reading the Kill Bin Laden book, which mm -hmm. was written yep. by Dalton Fury, was his pen name. Um, his actual name is Tom Greer. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. today was actually the anniversary of his passing. So he died four years ago today from cancer. Um, wow, I didn't even know that. Wow, yeah. I his book. Wow. Yeah, so... Um, he spoke about they had a guy i don't i've read the book years ago so mm -hmm. i could mess this up a little bit but i think they had a guy who was a marine who was from afghanistan i think or he spoke pashto um and because of his unique uh language skills he was sort of inserted into one of these frontline units that were you know going after bin laden and um, and that just kind of reinforces how invaluable having someone who speaks the language with you is, you know. And and John, I don't want to go down a you know a whole different rabbit hole right now, but because I've worked with some of these programs, this is after the fact. This is kind of more long when I got into the combat hunter program. I worked with some of these units that we're talking about that had these terps that were forward deployed. And, you know, they, they would be forward deployed. And, you know, you've heard the stories where they get citizenship and they come back. Mm. And, you know, there's some people like, well, oh, I don't know there, man, you know, bringing, uh, you know, these people back in our country. I'll tell you right now, hands down, 100 percent, those people that immigrate here and become naturalized from those places are they will bleed on our flag to keep it red. They're some of the most patri American patriotic because they've seen the other side, John. They, right. They've grown up in it and they go, you think it's bad. You have no idea. These are first world problems you guys are talking about. Let me show you some real evil, you know? Right. Like, yeah. Like you're worrying about, um, your fucking Amazon order getting to you yep. in one day instead of two days. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, and you know, you're right about that. I have actually a couple of friends who are from the middle East who served or worked in some capacity with the United States military and are now American citizens. And, um, yep. I think the majority of them are Iraqi born and mm -hmm. raised um, mm -hmm. and they live here now and they are like the most patriotic dudes I know, you know, like yep. um, uh, very pro-America and, and everything it stands for. And, um, you know, they do the whole, you know, go to the shooting range thing and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they're read up on the Constitution and, and that kind of thing. And, and I think... That plays a, a huge difference. Some of my uh, some of my closest friends uh, that I grew up with are first generation Americans, and their parents immigrated from Eastern Europe. And um, when people ask them, uh, so they're of Albanian descent. So when people ask them, "Oh, what are you?" they say, "I'm American first. 
Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's because, you know, they, their parents literally had to escape their country and, and get here for a better life. And, and I think mm-hmm. when you understand how things are on the other side, you appreciate mm-hmm. what we have here more. And, and I think some of the issues that we, we face today as a country uh, stem from people not understanding how bad some other places are in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a, I mean, it's been flying around the internet for a while, but when it came out, there was a collective laugh in the entire Marine Corps. Um, but so it was like a, it was like a little fob, little cop in the middle of nowhere, Afghanistan. And they had, you know, like the squad leaders whiteboard on the side of the wall, you know, that has like watch times and all that. Well, someone had wrote on it. Some Marine had wrote, wrote you know, America's not at war. America's at the mall. The Marine Corps is at war. Right. And, you know, we can laugh at that, but there's, there's a lot of truth in that. Not like, it's just, they have no idea. It's such a separation that, that they can have no clue unless you've seen it right there in front of that. And they don't understand why people are so staunchly energetic about those things. It's like, cause, cause you haven't seen the other side, my friend. Yeah. And, and um, so I grew up in New York, uh, in Manhattan specifically. And a lot of the people that I grew up with lean liberal either they're like left-wing maniacs or they lean liberal right so Mm -hmm. on social media platforms you know everybody's now talking about politics or whatever it may be um and then I'll see them talk about sort of foreign policy type of things uh war in Iraq or whatever it is and um it's kind of interesting to watch that the the uh, the approach that they have, and you you can tell I can tell by the approach and the things that they're saying that they really don't know what the fuck they're talking about. But mm-hmm. you know they they may go off of something they read or some sort of narrative that the, you know the U.S. is this big evil mm-hmm. uh, thing and and not actually look at what some of these places have been like and and you know what communism is about and and what uh some of these other things are about and i think if people traveled a little more or or interacted with folks from some of these places then they would understand that that's really not yeah the path to go down right yeah and while they type all that america's horrible stuff on twitter and facebook on tiktok you know and uh you know just going back to the old world side of it being around Iraqis and we were up by the Euphrates and Syria. And I remember, you know, coming in and the, the river was all cold and I, I had a pick a bucket full of up with my helmet and it was an Iraqi guy standing there. He's like, you know, Hey man, make sure you don't drink any of that. You'll, you'll get a tapeworm. And I was like, Oh, no kidding. You know? And he's like, yeah, my first two kids died because of that stuff. And he grabbed a shovel and kind of walked away. I was like, Jesus, this guy's two first kids died because of, you know, dysentery from their drinking water. Right, but, just um, just but, having clean water, like it's it's yep. it's such a privilege, right? Yep, yep. There was a Bill Gates Foundation, and I know he's in the news right now, but it kind of hit me. They started a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to go uh, provide fresh water in Africa, mm. and I, I read that. I'm like, what? Fresh water now? I'm like, you're multi multi, but that's what you're attacking. Well, I started reading it. Well, because of the dysentery and diarrhea, there's like a a, a wild 60% mortality rate from diarrhea in yeah. Africa. People today in 2020 are still dying from diarrhea, you know. Yeah. And, America's and evil. <laughs> exactly. And, and people just don't really get it. I mean, like I've, I've traveled um, quite a bit 
and uh, last summer I was in Jordan for a little bit, and mm. I actually got sick from. I don't even know where I got sick from. You know, it's hard to pinpoint it, but yeah. uh, me and the doctor were able to pinpoint it to my time in Jordan. And um, and she said it was most likely just the, wherever you ate at or something, they didn't, someone didn't wash their hands or the utensils weren't properly washed or whatever it may be. And, um, and that led to me getting sick. And uh, just things like that, people don't appreciate, mm-hmm. you know, some of the basic... Uh, necessities and things that we have that work here um mm-hmm. so it's just an interesting thing so um okay so let's sort of get over to your time in iraq um, mm-hmm. the united states was working to eliminate uh, foreign fighters flowing into iraq from the west through syria or uh dealing with the iranian-backed militias uh in the uh, southeast section of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and one thing a lot of people don't realize, and, and this sort of goes back to what I said before, when I see people talking about some of these things, is uh, a lot of people don't realize a lot of the fighting in Iraq, a lot of those groups were not Iraqis. They were foreign fighters that f- sort of uh, got into Iraq and were fighting Americans. So um, and you want to get into the even creepier rabbit hole is the southern ones you're talking about, the Nasria. Those ones, they would call themselves, you know, whatever, you know, the army of God. Mm. 50% of them, 60% were criminal enterprises. They were just hijacking semi-trucks. They were doing extortion, kidnapping. Mm-hmm. And they would just slap the army of God on there and they'd call themselves a terrorist. That went and react. There were families that were conducting these criminal enterprises. Right, almost like a like a mafia or, or yep. a mob or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. If it's IEDs today, cool. If that's what's making us money, cool. Is it human trafficking tomorrow? Hell, we were dealing in Western Iraq sheep uh, smuggling across the border, mm-hmm. and we all kind of laughed it off till everyone in our AO kind of freaked out because the Syrians were driving up the price of meat of of sheep in Iraq, and that matters to the Iraqi people. So it's like any a- anything they can get their hands on a dollar, they'll do it. You know. Yeah, and that's a good point that you bring up. Uh, I think another thing a lot of folks don't realize is, yes, this uh, this concept of terrorism or you know this very extreme viewpoint of some of these groups. Um, it's not that where wherever there are quote unquote terror groups and terror activity, it's not that everyone. It's not necessarily that everyone in those groups. Is some sort of fanatical jihadi. Mm-hmm. In yep. many cases, it's it's simply an economics thing. Like yep. there's no jobs and there's no way that they can put food on the table. And it's like if this guy from Boko Haram is like, well, we'll pay you five hundred U.S. dollars a month if you, you know, put bombs on the road and anytime yep. an American or somebody passes by, you set it off, we'll pay you. Yep. And so yep. it, it's an economic thing. Exactly. You know, nine, what Afghanis, Afghani family, uh, families annually make about $900 a year, an entire family. So right. you go to that, that kid there and you go, I'll give you 50 bucks right now to go bury this IED. It's like, he, he doesn't have to hate Americans. He probably loves, he probably listens to rap music. Right. But 50 bucks is 50 bucks in Afghanistan, you know? Right. And, and, and that makes a huge difference. And that's why, um, 
these groups thrive in places where there's governments aren't stable, the economies are are pretty bad. Uh, so that's why you see them in certain parts of the Middle East or Africa, and uh, and that's really where they uh, they thrive. And, yeah, and you tell me, John. I I saw like you hit the nail on the head with like very few of those Iraqi fighters were in it for the cause. Mm. You know, obviously there was a there was a bunch of them that were, but right. I ran into a believer one time. He had the look in his eye anyway, because we caught these guys before. And I don't know, sometimes they kind of break down. Not not, not your stoic, stoic uh, terrorist you'd think of, except one guy we caught in um, Husayba. I don't know. I can't remember where it was. But this guy was a true believer. You could see it in his eyes. And like that's I remember kind of getting chilled. I was like, dude, that's that guy's drinking the Kool-Aid. Whereas right. some of these guys, you know, they just got paid. Right. So there's, there's there's actually a great book, um, How to Catch a Terrorist. You ever read that one? No, I have not. I'm, a, I'm not familiar yeah. with it. Yeah, it's a great one. Remember Zarqawi, Abu mm-hmm. Musab or Zarqawi? Yeah. So this is the book about how they caught them. Okay. And basically, long story short, they, they got a, a cell of six guys and they started attacking them and they started figuring out what were their needs and wants. You know, you think, oh, this person's a terrorist. They want death to America. Well, he starts working this one guy, and this guy just kind of – he has two wives. He got hemmed up in this. His second wife is really expensive. She wants all this stuff. So he, he's an electrician, so he took the job with this carousel hooking up suicide vests so mm. he could pay for his wife's jeans. You know? Wow. So the, the, the guy working him was like, well, what if I just got you a divorce? And he's like, can you do that? And he's like, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> So they typed up a fake ministry of whatever document. They gave him his fake divorce, and he spilled the beans, and then they threw him in Abu Ghraib for like 50 years. Wow. <laughs> so even him, he flat out said, I was never motivated. These guys pay $1,000 per suicide vest. What am I going to do? You know? Right. Yeah. In his mind, he's like, fuck it. I guess I'm just going to make a couple of suicide yep. vests today, right? Exactly. You know, the good thing is we can play that game, too. You know? Yeah. <laughs> the highest bidder game. We can We can play that game, too. Yeah, and and well, it's it's part of what you know when they uh, went into Afghanistan that you know they put a bounty on Bin Laden's head and uh, they were working with um, the Northern Alliance and mm-hmm. you know that included millions of dollars in cash and weapons mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, with, with your unique background and, and understanding of Arabic culture and customs, um, you know, you're now in Iraq uh, with the Marine Corps, can you talk about some of what you were doing there and, and the type of operations you guys were running? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll, it's a big one. So I was there for the invasion, OIF-2 and OIF-3. And all from my, from my generation, our people on the ground, every one of those was completely different than the last one. You know, uh, the invasion was kind of, we were the liberating force. We had some Iraqis behind us, the Republic Guards. Mm. You know, and then OIF-2, that completely changed. The insurgency kicked off. So now we are fighting a hostile population with IEDs. Um, I will say in my time in the Marine Corps, in my deployments, I got real lucky because I was with light armored reconnaissance with the LAVs. And um, everybody's always, always bags on LAR, you know, but those LAVs saved our lives. I don't know how many times by the end of OIF-2, I think 80% of the vehicles in, the, in my company had an IED strike. Wow. Um, and the only reason there was a, not a lot more dead was because they were developing IEDs for Humvees at the time. So they would come up to the West and try those IEDs on us and they wouldn't work. Um, so that gave us some breathing room. 
On the Arabic side, it was very interesting. Um, the invasion was kind of wham bam. There wasn't much going on there uh, in terms of a lot of translating happening. But OIF two, it really got kind of creepy, honestly, John. I don't know if you spent any time over in El Qaim, western part of Iraq. Um, but that was we we had this kind of running joke. It was a the the land that the Marine Corps forgot. Mm. We were kind of out there on the wild west, and there was some. Mm, just say strange things happen on the border. We we'd gotten in gunfights with the Syrians before mm. and they've shot at us. And, um, but really getting in there and, and being able to talk to people person to person without the language barrier, you know, paid dividends for us because basically in my little neighborhood that I'd run around in where our company was, people knew my, knew me by name, mm. you know, they, they'd wave and say hi. So just that right there, it is worth its weight in gold. So establishing relationships. And it was really interesting because for OF2, I got blown up. I got hurt and they didn't medevac me, but they said, basically you can't leave the fob. I got a TBI. So they're like, you can't leave the fob anymore uh, because of the TBI, but we need you in the detention center. Mm. So they would pull a dude off the street and they'd pull him into the detention center and they'd, you know, pull him in there and we'd go to start talking to him. I'd walk in the room and be like, Oh, what's up, Don? <laughs> and they're like, oh, shit. And they're like, yeah, oh, shit's right, brother. <laughs> you know, because, um, you know, I think we told them I was dead, too. Yeah, I think uh, we told them the IED killed me, so they all felt bad. And then they'd see me in the interrogation. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's pretty interesting. Can you talk about the uh, the situation where you got blown up? Oh, yeah, sure. Nothing much to it. Um, outwardly, anyway. We <clears throat> Obviously, the IED threat was huge there. They were getting savvy. You know, they, they, they were watching the IEDs blow up and, and not do enough damage. They'd blow a tire off or a strut. They'd bang everybody up on the inside, but it was pretty survivable. So our area, there was kind of a open region on the area, on the Syrian border where there was not a population, just border patrol. And they knew we'd coil up up there. We'd stay the night up there and we'd be in the, we didn't have a fob where we were at. We'd stay in the field for three weeks and go back to the big fob for a week. So they figured out our pattern, and um, basically, the, from what the EOD guy said, they took a um, anti-tank mine, they double-stacked it, and they put an uh, aluminum cone on top, which is, this is the wild stuff, because we weren't the first vehicle to get blown up. We were like the fourth vehicle, because with that cone on top, every vehicle that goes over the top pushes the cone down you know, another inch, and finally, the third or fourth vehicle goes over and it cooks off, so... The explosion didn't actually really injure me. It, it blown so much dirt out from under the vehicle. The vehicle dropped, and it's like a 24-ton vehicle. And I just pretty much lawn darted on the inside, broke my nose, and, and kind of got bloody. Yeah. I was I fine. I walked away. I mean, right. here's another thing, John. At that point, for me, my personal opinion, I have let buddies that lost legs and still came back in the Marine Corps, still – did deployments. My best friend, Chris Chandler lost his leg in Afghanistan, uh, and did three, you know, two more deployments in Iraq with me. So wow. when I hear purple heart, that's what I think of. So they, I came back from getting medevac and they're like, there you go. Here's your purple heart ceremony. And I was like, are you kidding me? I had a bloody nose. And right. like, if, it, if you bleed, you get a purple heart. It was like Oprah, like here, purple heart for you. <laughs> Okay. So I'm not um, disparaging. I'm just saying for my position. I, right, right, right. You know what I'm trying to say. Right, of course. Um, so you you had mentioned that they were developing IEDs for the Humvees. Are you talking about yeah. what the Iranians were doing? 
Yeah, they were the ones who who, who turned that thing into a science, man. Yeah, uh, absolutely. From from day one. So, you know, not to get all crazy, but we were dealing with the 155 shells, you know, kind of tied together. Mm-hmm. They weren't. That's a munition that wasn't made for that purpose. You know, some of them, half of them went off. Sometimes they bury them too deep. Well, then the Iranians came in, and even before the EFPs, the electronic or explosively formed penetrators. I remember seeing video. This video, John, scared the hell out of me. And I remember I was back from OIF2, and I watched it, and it was a guy in Iraq, and it was one of the propaganda videos. It was nothing but these pre-made IEDs with uh, plates in them and silencers for AKs. Mm. And this guy was spray painting them with a with an industrial spray paint gun. That's how many of them, like hundreds of them. Wow. And I'm going, holy crap. And th- those are all Iranian produced for a long time. Right. And, you know, I would like to talk about Iran as they play a major role in um, in what happened in Iraq and what's happening in Iraq. And then specifically, uh, Qasem Soleimani, who was killed in January of this year, ah, yeah. he ties into all of that because that was all uh, his gig there. And yes. um so, so okay, so we'll, we'll jump over to that then. Um, sure. So Soleimani was killed um, early January. Uh, his death had implications that reverberated across the Middle East. Uh, I remember, I think I was like taking a nap or something. And then mm-hmm. I woke up and I looked at my phone and I got the notification saying, you know, the U.S. has killed Qasem Soleimani. And I, the first thing I said was, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember thinking... Probably for the first night or first two days, maybe I'm like, we might actually like go to overt war with Iran. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, you have um, you know all the uh, the commentators and and politicians. Uh, and usually, what happens is if the, the liberal president takes a, makes a move uh, on a foreign policy level. The conservatives will, you know, oh, that was a bad idea, and they go at him, and vice versa. Um, mm-hmm. Trump probably gets a little more than usual uh, mm-hmm. resistance uh, from the left. Um, but knowing what I know about Iran's involvement in Iraq and what they do across the Middle East, not just Iraq, mm-hmm. um, and what this guy Soleimani, who he was, as far as uh, what he was responsible for and the programs that he oversaw uh, running a basically Iranian foreign policy, he wasn't a good guy. And um, oh, oh, absolutely not. Yeah. He has the blood of Americans on his hands. And um, yeah, directly. You know, yeah. And so it's like this dude was a piece of shit. And by killing him, they signaled to Iran that, like, any of you guys are on the list. Like, if you fuck around, any one of you guys can get hit. Because he... So, Iran... So, it's kind of interesting. So, after he died, I had the bureau chief for the Kuwaiti Daily on with me. And he is... uh, I I think his mother or his father was Iraqi, and his other parent was from Lebanon. So, he spent time in between both places as he grew up. Uh, he now lives in the U.S. and you know, he's an American citizen and everything. And he's an interesting guy because he says it 
uh, that he's a registered liberal. Um, he voted for Obama twice. He's probably he may not vote for Trump uh, this coming election, but he believes what Trump did was a, a an excellent move because it's it's showing them that uh, you can't just do what you want and there's going to be repercussions. So, uh, you know, as someone who is, uh, you know half Arab and, uh, you know, you spent time there growing up and then in your service, uh, you know, wh- what did you think when he was killed? And, and maybe you can talk to some of what you know about him. Yeah. So let me, let me start with this. Let me start with perspectives, you know, and this is just my opinion. You know, what do I know? But from a nationalistic perspective is, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. That guy had blood on his hands. And, you know, he didn't get got then, but he got got now. It's, you know, it's right. a matter of time, you know, um, in a national sense. And, OK, I'm not going to be all hard. And someone's probably going to tear me apart for even saying this. But back in the Roman times, I can't even remember the Latin phrase, but there was a thing like you'd be you'd be a Roman citizen. You'd be walking down the street and, uh, and a thief would jump out of the bushes, you know, to accost you. And all you'd have to do back in the Roman Empire when it was at its height is you'd look at him and go, I'm a Roman citizen. And they'd put that knife away and be like, Roger that. You have My a good day, sir. Anything I can get you, you know, <laughs> because the Romans, and I'm not condoning this, the Romans, if you got caught messing around, they'd come up and raise your village, salt it, you know, yeah. for the end of time. You know, yeah. I'm not saying we got to do that, but I'm saying the concept of that, if, if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You need to know that. Prior to this, we've all heard the red line, you know, to draw a line in the sand. Mm-hmm. When you give someone, when you say, I'm going to do something to you, and you don't do it, you've lost all face. Okay. Right. Fast forward a couple years back, what happens to that Navy ship when all those 14 sailors got caught? Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, do you think anybody's trying that shit today? Yeah, no way. Any country in this world is going to touch any vehicle connected to the American country, you know? Right. No, um, way. no way. You know, uh, it, it's like the grenade effect. There's a lot of people that, that hate the current president, but it's an effective big carrot, big stick kind of thing you know we are not good at messaging john when it comes to warfare and terrorism and iranians we're not really good at out messaging people because we're not playing by the same set of rules if i say come into a village and i say hey we're americans i'm going to inoculate everybody in here against typhus that's a good thing right i give all the kids you know a typhus shot then i come back to the village and the next day in the in the in the the vietnam the Viet Cong have killed everyone in the village true story and they right. left their arms in the middle of the village to where we gave them the TV shots. That, that really happened in Vietnam. That's crazy. You can't out-message that, okay? Um, what I have seen in my time, little time in the military and in the world, cutting off the head of the snake usually works, you know, because when you do that, it sends a signal. Um, and the last thing I want to tell you, John, this is more of a case study. I do this case study with my behavioral training, and people do not believe me when I tell them this happened, all right? This is about 2004, 2005 timeframe in a place called Karbala in Iraq, where three suburb, four suburbans rolled up to a provincial kind of government center where these army officers were having a meeting. They have to go through three checkpoints, John, to get through there. These suburbans roll up to the first Iraqi on a checkpoint. He sticks his head in there. There are blonde guys in there. They're all wearing um, the same gear. They're blasting ACDC. They got American flag patches. So what do you think he does? He waves them right through. They go all the way through. They get to the compound and the dudes park right next to the Humvee of the security detail. And these guys get out and they start doing a near ambush. They start throwing grenades and Humvees. Mm, I remember this. 
Yeah, yeah. They think their objective was going to try to kidnap the major in the meeting, but they couldn't get to him. So they just grabbed four American soldiers and threw them in the back of the suburban and took off. All right. Uh, so this is four Americans that have been kidnapped, disarmed. They're moving down the highway. They got a Kiowa warrior up there, a reconnaissance aircraft that was following them. And for whatever reason, they got spooked. All suburbans pull over. They all get out. They ditch their rifles and gear in a ditch. They bring the soldiers out. And one guy walks up and executes every soldier one bullet back of the head, dumps them in the canal, takes off. So this all happened. Everyone knew it was Iran no Kuds, the special forces. No one could operate. No, no insurgency was operating at that level with that intelligence. And uh, nothing ever really happened to it. It just kind of went away. And we're like, oh, that sucks. And no one ever talked about it again. And I still bring that story up and, and no one believed me. Absolutely Iranian-backed. If not El-Quds force, there was a proxy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, and Soleimani, so there's an interesting dynamic in Iran. So they have a president who is democratically elected. The people vote for him. And then they have, uh, you know, some other level of members of the government, parliament or whatever it is. And these people are voted in. So you have that, but then you have uh, the Ayatollah, who is uh, on a re religious level, he is the you know the highest guy in the uh, Shia Muslim community. So because they are all Shia Muslims in that country, or majority of them are, um, he is the top dog, the Ayatollah. So, but he's not elected by anybody. He is. You know, according to them, he's sort Elected of... Elected by God. <laughs> right. So he's number one. <clears throat> Soleimani reported to him, not to the president. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, Soleimani was the second most powerful guy in the country. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, the president couldn't order him to do something. He took his orders directly from the Ayatollah. So uh, it's kind of an interesting dynamic because... You know, uh, opponents of the president when this happened are going on TV and saying, oh, well, you killed the head of the state. But he's not elected to any position. So technically, was he a head of state? You know, maybe you can play games with, with that. But yeah. um, play all the games you want. They can they can play all the media games they want. He's he's worm dirt, you know, yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day. You know, yeah, and, and and he directly has blood on his hands. Mm -hmm. uh, not not like oh, like he's just kind of part no direct, you know. So it's like yeah, never going to shed a tear over that guy. Yeah, and the uh, the incident you just mentioned, uh, you had that. You had uh, you know they were training and arming, you know the 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 entire Sadr city, uh, you know that group, uh, and then and a bunch of other smaller well, groups. Mm -hmm. What's his name? Makuta. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, Al-Sadr, yeah. yep. And, um, and, and these guys were killing uh, American and British soldiers uh, as often as they could. Um, they knew on the ground, they knew that this was, uh, you know, Iranian special forces were behind all of this, the training and the supplying of weapons and everything. And, um, and they were just told to sort of stand down. They weren't allowed to go after them. Uh, a couple of friends of mine who were uh, Army Special Forces, and they helped st uh, stand up the uh, Iraqi Counterterrorism Force. Yeah. Uh, and they yeah. were running ops into Sadr City, uh, which is super dangerous. Um, that was a badass unit. I know the unit you're talking about. Yeah. The Iraqis. Yeah, Iraqi yeah, yeah. Those dudes are for real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So, 
Yeah, so, um, but the guys who were training them were a, a part of the SIF at the time, was called the SIF companies, the Commanders and Extremist Force. Uh, now I think it's Crisis Response Force, and, and they may even get stood down completely. But um, so the SIF companies were a special subset of the Green Berets, and they were essentially the counterterrorism arm of the special forces groups. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there was a point where the uh, the counterterrorism task force operating out of Baghdad consisted of uh, mainly U.S. Tier 1 Army component. Uh, they had a British component, the SAS, and um, and they were just running dudes down, you know, night after night. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It got to a point where uh, they were sort of undermanned. They were losing guys. Uh, people were getting wounded. And, uh, you know, there was an sort of unlimited amount of targets. So they needed a little bit of help. So they had um, they had augmented a SIF company to work and go after targets with that task force. Mm-hmm. Um, so then what eventually happened is I don't know what particular event changed the policy, but they said, you know what, go after the Iranians. And um, mm. and the SIF mm. guys, they were rolling up Quds Force guys. Like they were getting into gunfights. They were killing and capturing Iranians, uh, Iranian wow. Special Forces guys. Yeah, it's crazy. A tear in my eye. Tear in my <laughs> eye. Yeah, do, John, did you ever work with, you ever remember hearing the Shawanis? You ever heard of those guys? No. But I'll tell you, man, this is one of the terms, this involves Arabic, and uh, it's kind of a funny story, but they dropped a group of Iraqis on us in OF2. I have no idea where they came from. Um, Obviously, it was staffed by our people, by a couple of them, but it was honestly mainly them. And we went out on a lot of missions with them. And what surprised me when I first met them, they're like, yeah, this is the new Iraqi soldier who are going to be working with. I start talking to them, I start meeting them, and I'm speaking Arabic to them. Every one of them, no one is under, like, the age of 50. They're all old, and they're all walking mm. old, and they look old, and I'm like, the hell is this? You know, I'm like, whatever, <laughs> here we go. And we started doing missions with them, kind of, and, like, we stopped a semi-truck one time out in a road, and without me telling them, these guys pop out. One guy pops out with an RPK, does overhead security. These guys go wide, and one guy goes, I'm like, okay, that's pretty good, pretty good tactics. And then I remember detaining some people over the Syrian border. And the guy, I called him DMX because he looked like DMX, biggest Iraqi <laughs> I've ever seen. And he goes, hey, can I talk to this guy? And I was like, yeah, sure, go ahead. You ain't going to hurt him. And he goes, no, 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 I just want to talk with him. And he sits down and he starts talking with this guy. And this guy wasn't the main kind of perpetrator. We just wanted information on another guy. And the speech pattern, this Iraqi started talking to this guy in. I can't explain it, John, that you had to have been there, but it was basically like, who the hell is this guy? This mm. was not the first time this guy talked to somebody in an interview or an interrogation. This guy was a stone cold professional. Right. And within about nine minutes, this guy's singing like a canary and DMX walks by and he kind of bumps me on the shoulder. He's like, all right, good talk, man. Thanks. And he walks away. <laughs> I'm pretty sure what we did, don't quote me, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure all we just found all the old Iraqi special forces guys and mm. said, Hey, you're on the American side now. And they said, Roger that. That's funny. <laughs> but really hard dudes, man. Th- th- that to me was our counter to the El Quds shenanigans was whoever those dudes are. God bless them, man. Wherever they are in the world, there's some hard dudes. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I had a guy on the podcast, uh, was it last year, um, 
Well, earlier this year, I mean, I can't even fucking remember. Like, I don't even know what day of the week it is anymore, right? So, um, he was a, uh, he worked at the agency, a CIA guy, and um, he was at the uh, Special Activities Division, Ground Branch, so he's doing a lot of, like, on-the-ground stuff, and um, he had produced this documentary about uh, the Iraqi military's push to get uh, ISIS out of Mosul. Mm, and um, it, it was pretty interesting. Uh, <clears throat> I watched it before I had him on. And um, they highlighted, I mean, there were a lot of different actual military units. Um, and then there were sort of militias that were working together to get ISIS out. Um, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, some of these guys were Shia militias, uh, probably people who have some allegiance to Iran. But everybody was sort of working together to get ISIS out. Um, yeah. They went, ISIS went too hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. went too hardcore for everybody. You know? Yeah. And um, and then they, they spent some time with the Iraqi Special Forces. And um, and these dudes are just like rock stars, man. And they're like going from, they're fighting literally house to house, street to street, um, you know, because they like ID'd the fuck out of everything. Um, you know, everything was booby trapped. So yep. it was house like. House IEDs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like very slow progress. Everything has to be methodical. But even on video, I mean, dudes are, you know, opening a door and the shit blows up and, and they're losing guys. And um, so it, that it's- attack you're talking about, John Mosul, there were one my um, guy had worked with come back and he was there on the ground. He was one of the Americans on the ground leading those companies when they mm. cleared Mosul. And I'm not going to say it on the show, but some of the tactics were wild. He goes, some of the best fighting I've ever seen from the enemy side. And they were doing things like, you know, they would wall up a, a garage. They'd wall, they'd put a suicide bar, a car in the garage. They'd wall it up and make it look like just a cinder block wall. Mm. And they would wait for your patrol to go by because everyone was on the lookout for, for cars, you know. And so they'd wait for it to go by and they'd just drive through that, you know, little cinder block wall and blow up on you like 10 feet away. Crazy. It was crazy, and and a lot of the uh, the fighting that was going on, like specifically, like with the with the Kurds and uh, you know the Peshmergas and, and the different groups there, a lot of that shit is like on Instagram. Like you can just go oh, to fucking yeah. Instagram and see these dudes oh, like yeah. fighting, you know. Um, and I, ISIS started doing. I, I don't know who started this. It might have been ISIS, but ISIS started this, and then the Iraqi army, ad- I think, adapted the tactic where they would. Basically, get like consumer level drones, you know, like a DJI drone, like a Phantom drone. Um, you know, it costs a thousand bucks or whatever it is, and just rig it with explosives, and then just fucking drop the drone on dudes and and blow people up. I mean, and you can watch this on Instagram right now. It's crazy. Absolutely, they have the how-to videos. The they hell, they even show you that you can get on the video. They're using the AK forty-seven, their their version of the grenade launcher. Mm-hmm. or their version of the 203 there's videos you can find that'll show you how to pull the fuse on it and you know render it safe enough to drop the, the good thing is though from what i've heard from the community is that specific one is never really going to get big because they, they they assume out of every like if you're the guy making those bombs one out of every five is blown up in the space oh, <laughs> so shit. not a very safe effective but not a safe platform <laughs> right right it's like um you know, they're going after bomb makers, right? And they roll people up and they, they can tell who the guy is by looking at his hands, right? Because the yep. bomb makers usually have fingers that they yep. blew off. Yeah. 
Yep, or Clorox and bleach uh, stains and things of that nature. Yeah, all sorts of fun stuff. You can, if you're just paying attention, that's that's half my job now. <laughs> yeah, people to pay attention. Right, so let's talk about that. Um, so you specialize in pre-attack prevention and training. Um, your social media account is uh, interesting and and beneficial in, in my view because you post things that will show an attack, like could be a stabbing or a shooting or something like that, or, or somebody uh, attempting to rob someone. And um, mm-hmm. you walk through what can be done differently, and then you, and you talk about situational awareness. Um, so, I mean, I'm assuming that the answer is yes, but this skill set and mindset, is this something that you developed in the Marine Corps and then sort of worked on as you got out, or...? Well, in typical Marine Corps fashion, this is something that the Marine Corps took and shoved down my throat, <laughs> whether I liked it or not, and um, happened to be a great thing. So basically, John, I, 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 I got out in 06, and I actually got involuntary recalled. That's, a, that's another story. Mm. Um, I was a civilian, and the Marine Corps stuck a FedEx in my door with a plane ticket and said, get your ass back to the, the Marine Corps. <laughs> so that was tons of fun after three tours, but it was co- probably the coolest thing that ever happened because they needed instructors to go to Combat Hunter, this new program that teaches the stuff. And I'm like, I don't know. Sounds weird. And they're like, they pay you a lot of per diem because you travel a lot. I was like, done. So that's my <laughs> hero story of landing in the program. Uh, when I got there, um, that's where I really started developing. I, I landed as a combat instructor at the school of infantry and we were tasked with training the fleet Marine forces, uh, active duty and reserve in the combat hunter program. The program is a three tiered program and it was specifically developed by general Mattis himself to deal with the threats we've been just talking about for the past kind of hour or so, John. And it was dealing with a civilian population where you, where you can have an attack or an attacker amongst the civilian population. You can't just waste the whole civilian population. Obviously you have to pick out that, that threat in the crowd. So general Mattis said, basically go find me anybody and everybody who has anything to say about uh, situational awareness, behavior profiling, so they brought law enforcement that they bought, uh, like Greg Williams, they brought um, big game trackers like David Scott Donlin, and they developed this program. That's what I landed in. So I taught uh, behavior profiling. That's what we call in the military. Most people, <laughs> I can't use that language now, but all it is is, you know, we've taken profiling, we, we've called it a dirty word because we attach racial profiling to it. Mm. Racial profiling is horrible, John. It doesn't work on its face because think about it. Think about the enemies of America. You know, if I'm walking around looking for, you know, the bearded Arab guy in a man dress, uh, I'm never going to see him because, you know, ISIS has blonde people who are blue hair, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes. So racial profiling is dumb. It doesn't work. But behavior profiling works all day, every day. You know, I don't care what you look like. If you're giving me the indicators of fear or threat, uh, I'm going to pay attention to you in that crowd of people. Right. Um, so I went through that, trained. I, I had a great time. I actually spent 10 years there. I got out of the Marine Corps again after four, and they said, hey, you want a job? So I went right back with them as a civilian contractor. More years there, trained about six, 7,000 Marines total, a bunch of instructors. Wait, and then, so, you, um, so when you first – I'm sorry, sorry to cut you off. So when you yeah, first no, no, no. got to that program, you were working as a Marine in the program yes, at first? Yes, I was okay. a Marine. Yep, I was a Marine. Landed – I was a – um, for your listeners, 
uh, out there. We have the School of Infantry where you go be a combat instructor and you teach the young guys. Um, so that's what I initially went to be a School of Infantry instructor. In within that school, they had the program, and that's where I landed as a Marine. But okay. then I transitioned over after four years as a Marine there, transitioned over as a civilian staff. They literally okay. did my hail and bail on a Friday, and I, and I came back with a big, huge beard on Monday. <laughs> so, um, so let me ask you, <clears throat> you said they, they'd sort of gotten all these different folks to mm-hmm. come together and, and create this program. Um, what made them pick you? Was it because of your background and your experiences in Iraq? So uh, I'm not going to act like I got handpicked but because I'm some uh, badass Marine or I did something heroic, Johnny. Like, honestly, we, when we got recalled, it was to free up uh, active duty services to go in theater. And mm, okay. so that was the distinction. Now, once I did land at SOI and they heard um, about Arabic, and they heard that. I think that's what really did it for them. You okay. know, and they go, yep, we're taking this guy. So right. that's how that started. And how it developed is I just – there were only a few of us, John. There was only – I don't know if you've read the book Left to Bang um, by Patrick Van Horn. That's a great book about the program. It, it was like three teams of Marines. So there was only a few of us to teach us stuff. So we had to kind of drink from a fire hose. Mm, no, I haven't read the book, no. Oh, it's a good one. It's good and great. Pat was on the on the team uh, with me for a while, and he left, and he wrote the book, and uh, it, it's just great primer for the information. So basically, you guys are just teaching situational awareness um, in a in a combat theater, and and trying to give people the ability to sort of pick out who's acting essentially like suspect in a crowd. Yes. Yeah, the, the whole overarching concept, the, the, the God we pray to uh, when I teach people is the left the bang mindset. You know, mm. we think of an incident timeline and you have bang right in the middle. Bang is your bad event, your shooting, your mugging, your car bomb, the bad thing you don't want to happen. And then you have all these actions after the fact. You have good guy actions, you know, call medevac, you know, call 911, secure civilians or whatever. And then you have bad guy actions. But what about the other side of the coin? You know, we've been training for a long time, military, civilians, cops, anybody. Hey, when this happens, you need to do this. When this happens, do this. Okay. And that's fine. We need to understand what to do. But what about all those pre-event indicators? I don't have to wait for the violence to happen to look for that two or three pre-event indicators. And I call, you know, pulling on a thread and you pull on the thread long enough, bang, doesn't happen. So that's what I'm about. I'm about teaching people pre-event indicators, whether it's behavior, whether it's ground sign, whether it's your own fear centers, your brain trying to tell you something and you need to pay attention to. Um, that's what I do. I want people looking left the bang, looking for those pre-event indicators, because like, you know, John, you know, it's all call of duty till you get shot at for the first time. Yeah. That's when you realize you're like, oh, shit, this sucks. I never <laughs> want this to happen again, you know? Right. And, um, <clears throat> you know, that that is an interesting um concept and i think uh, i had a guy on here before uh he's a former navy seal his name is remy adelake and he's um me and him actually grew up like 15 minutes from each other um so but he he went on to become a seal and he he went into like a special sort of intelligence program um you know being a black guy uh, he he was able to blend in into certain environments better than 
you know, a white guy from Texas, right? So, um, and, and one of the things he spoke about is, um, so before he had joined the Navy, he was sort of a knucklehead and kind of a hustler, and, you know, but it's kind of typical New York, kind of growing up in the streets a little bit. Like, he wasn't like this super gangster or anything, but you, you, you kind of have like a hustler mentality in New York, right? And, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, but what's interesting about it, and, and we touched on this, is, is you sort of learn, like, inadvertently you learn about situational awareness and, um, you know, how to keep a low profile, or how to spot someone who's about to do something, uh, you know, without any act, like technical training. And, and one of the things he spoke about was um, they would get SEALs into that program he was in, that sort of special detachment. And um, a lot of those dudes were excellent Shooters, excellent gunfighters, um, you know, could call in, you know, airstrikes right on the spot. It needs to be that kind of thing. But they just couldn't sort of grasp the concept of of being, you know, low vis, low profile and 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 that kind of thing. And um, uh, in many ways, some of that stuff, I, f- I feel like uh, certain people just uh, to that level anyway, you can't teach mm-hmm. it. Um but it, it that's why I find I found uh you know when I was watching the the first couple of minutes of your podcast with Mike Whitland, I found it so fascinating because it's such an interesting topic and um you know being from new york and and living here um you know for years, I worked down in the city, so I would ride the subway every single day and um every single day on the train, there's like at least one person that's on the car with me. Who you say like this person? There's some kind of mental issue with this person. Like they, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and it, it happens all the time in New York. There's like random slashings and stabbings uh, <clears throat> on the subway. So I would I would ride the subway. Um, often I would have both headphones in my ear with nothing playing, just to sort of throw people off a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah. And. Uh, even if like if, if it was a day that I was like super exhausted, you know, I was usually on the train at like six a.m. or five thirty in the morning, um, and not really being a morning person, I was always exhausted, right? So, um, I would sort of close my eyes in between stops. But once we the train stops and the doors open, I'm paying attention to who's getting on, who's getting off, mm-hmm. and if I spot someone that kind of looks. Like there's something off with them, I wouldn't close my eyes again. I would just kind of keep an eye on yep. them. And um, yeah, it, it, what you just said, John, what you just said, you would see something. Mm-hmm. Born and raised in New York, riding the subway, you're 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 you've been conditioned to those humans around you and their behavior. Yeah. You can't exactly articulate what it is. I couldn't if you if I said John, write it down. Why do you why do you, why are you staring at that person? You probably couldn't write it down. Yeah, that's I where I come in. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's where I come in. You know, that's where I, I didn't invent any of this stuff. This stuff's been studied for years and years and years, but I will come in and I will give you the ability to articulate that stuff to somebody else who's never been in your situation. Like when I teach cops, you know, this every time I've never been a cop in my whole life, John, every time I get up there, I do my song and dance the first break. It's always the old timers. It's never the young guys. They'll walk up to me and they'll go, Hey man, I've been doing what you just talked about for 20 years. I just didn't know it had a name. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. It has a name. So that's what I want to solve. Is that something, you know, we always say, see something, say something, or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, what's that something, what does that mean to you, me, you know, people down the street? Right. And, 
and you're 100 percent right like if you told me to describe it like i would try my best to describe it but i feel like i wouldn't articulate it the right way or at least i wouldn't articulate it the way the fucking the bells go off in my head when i see it right mm-hmm. and yep. um and then i remember there was a point uh where there were there were several like random uh, slashings, like people were getting slashed in the face on the sub on different subway lines, um, either in Manhattan or the Bronx or Brooklyn or Queens, whatever it was. And um, so, whenever there's there seems to be a period of these sort of events happening, I'm extra alert, even though I'm always mm-hmm. alert anyway. And then I remember I was being on the I was on the the train heading downtown, and um, the 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 stop was 125th Street in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And this dude gets on, and there's something off about him. You know, he mm-hmm. he he looks like he's agitated. Maybe um, he's sort of breathing heavy and hard, um, mm-hmm. and he's just he's looking all around the train car like nonstop. So I'm like, all right, yeah. I think I'm I might have been listening to an audio book or reading a book, and I immediately stopped it. I'm like, I'm watching this dude, right? Yep. And um, player two has entered the field. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. So he's standing there by the door. And he has something in his hand, but I can't quite see what it is. But I'm looking, and I kind of see something that looks like it might be a metal object. So I'm like, is this dude, like, going to slash somebody right now? And I'm just staring at him, and he's looking around and looking around. And I, and to me, I feel like his behavior is, like, it's overt, It's like overtly screaming that this dude is, is dangerous. And, and no I, one is paying attention, right? Oh, my no, God. No, you're the only one in the room, right? People are Wrong. right next to him, faces buried in a book yep. on their phone. Yep. I'm like, if this dude just decides to get wild, this person's going to get stabbed or cut or something. If it got to that point, you know, I'm going to jump up and intervene, right? But um, for that person, sit, you know, nearest to him, they're going to get cut or slashed you know, potentially killed and they have no fucking idea what's about to happen to them, you know? Yep. And, and you standing 10 feet away, you're already telling the whole story. How does yeah. that work, John? How, what do you have a crystal ball? Yeah. <laughs> You've been exposed to it. And like what you're talking about him looking around the, one of the first things I, I, you know, I tell my Marines, how do we eat an elephant? You know, one bite at a time. Mm-hmm. So with the behavioral domains, when I break them down, I break them down into, you mentioned a few already sweating, uh, breathing heavy, you know, that's a biometric cue, uh, kinesics, the nonverbal cues looking around, look, 99% of the population, John is completely unaware of their surroundings. Right. So if I ever identify anybody who's checking their six, who's aware of their background, you know, someone who walks into a restaurant sits down, puts her back up against the wall and is watching the door. That's someone who's situational awareness. I have no idea if they're a good or bad person. Right. All I know is all these people in this, in this crowd, you've got my full attention, my friend. Just right. that right there, John, if I can, you know, for your listeners, if you can utilize that, look for situational awareness. That's a big indicator because most people don't do that. There's only the good and the bad people are the only ones that do that. So I got to figure out who you are. I'd like to take a second to talk about our sponsor for this podcast, and it's a movie that's coming out this month. And TriStar Pictures brings you The Last Vermeer, a new captivating dramatic thriller directed by Dan Fredkin, starring Guy Pearce and Klaus Bang. While Joseph Piller, played by Klaus Bang, a Dutch Jew was fighting in the resistance during the Second World War, the witty debonair artist Han van Medgeren, played by Guy Pearce, was hosting hedonistic 
soirees and selling Dutch art treasures to top Nazis. Following the war, Pillar becomes an investigator assigned the task of identifying and redistributing stolen art, resulting in the flamboyant Van Medgeren being accused of collaboration, a crime that's punishable by death. Despite mounting evidence, Pillar becomes increasingly convinced of Hans' innocence and finds himself in the unlikely position of fighting to save his life. The last Vermeer opens only in theaters November 20th. Being somewhere and, and trying to be the gray man, right? You don't want to be noticed. You don't want to stand out. You kind of want to be, you know, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. The, the thing that I think about is I don't want to seem like I'm aware of what's going on around me, even though I'm hyper aware of what's going on around me, right? Yep. I don't want people to notice that I'm actually watching everything and pretending that I'm not, you know? Absolutely. Um, so, uh, so then you you uh, you get out the Marine Corps, but you go back as a contractor. Uh, mm-hmm. How long were you contracting there before you were finished? Uh, about five years. About five years. At the five year mark, I, I actually I left them. Kind of, I become the combat hunter course chief as a civilian, which is you know if you've been in the military, is really weird having a school course chief going to ops meetings. So that was a good time. I kind of, I kind of nailed all the plateaus there. You know, I, I, there was no more new horizons for me. Right. And a lot of this bad stuff was happening, you know, right here at home. Uh, so that's when I started the, the business of teaching, um, corporations, houses of worship, anybody who needs situational awareness training. I actually went back, uh, for a couple years ago to help out. Uh, they needed some help for a little bit. So I dipped my head back into the program for about a year, then dipped back out. But okay. yeah, about five years. So, in, in uh, all in all, uh, being active in the Marine Corps and contracting, how long were you essentially serving? Uh, for the Marine Corps, it was 10 years. Uh, broken time because I got recalled. So, basically 10 years. First four and then four and some change there at the end. I also stayed in the reserves till about 2014. Um, that was So, a couple years of the reserves. Great unit, great time just with the business and whatnot. I just didn't have the full effort to, to give. Okay. So how long have you been operating your company now? Four years now. Four years? So okay. Coming up on four years. Yeah. 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 Uh, 2017 is when I officially left the program, started the business. Okay. So can you sort of walk me through, um, you know, what the process may be like if, if, uh, an organization or something is interested in, in, uh, getting some training from you? Sure. Yeah. Uh, John, the first thing I tell uh, everyone to do is I just got done developing what I call the safe observer program. I, I deal with a lot of businesses and organizations and uh, we have a lot of instructors, but I just developed a safe observer program. This is information for everybody. So not only if you're in the military, if you're law enforcement, if you're just, you know, mom and pop, this is information for everybody. It's called the safe observer program and I'll definitely get you a link to it. It only costs ninety seven dollars. Um, and that will give you the full run of, of what I'm talking about, breaks down all the domains. Besides that, you know, there's a ton of stuff out there. We have the Safe Instructor Program. Uh, you can find me at emergencedisrupt.com. That's our website. And then on Instagram, it's Yusuf Badu underscore emergence. And I'll definitely get you those links. But yeah, I'm all over the place. It's like, catch me if you can. Nice. Um, so I, I saw you, I think you posted this earlier today. Um, but you wrote something about 
uh, some people couldn't find your uh, or, or their your content wasn't popping yeah. up in their feeds. Yeah, so something some strange happened, but I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. So uh, last week I, I posted an interview I did with Emily. Emily has a uh, just a, a really very powerful story about human trafficking, mm. and we sat there for an hour and talked about human trafficking indicators. Honestly, John, one of the toughest things I've ever done that that woman's story. You oh. and me are, are are used to physical kind of pain, but wow, she but they shadow banned me. They they started shadow banning that interview. So um, really, Ed, yeah, Ed, Ed's manifesto posted it. There's a couple big, big people that post reposted it, and people were coming back going, "Hey, he deleted his account. It's sending me somewhere else." I'm like, "Come on, Instagram, you're gonna shadow ban that?" <laughs> That's crazy. Um, so uh, this uh, this Emily, uh, I, I think I know her. Is she from California? Yes. And this incident took place in California. Yes, it did. Okay, yeah. So I spoke to her a couple of years ago, actually. Um, did you? Wow. Okay. Yeah, small world, right? So, um, wow. uh, a friend I don't of mine. Give too much information. I mean, it's already out there, but right. you know, I I try to you know, <laughs> I'm real careful what I say and what I don't. I mean, of course. Out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, where can people get that interview? First of all, you can get it on Instagram now. Now it's not being as as for right now. You're not getting shadow banned, and it's on our Facebook group. Um, I have a free threat detection group on Facebook. It doesn't cost anything. I, I, jo I jump in there once a week. We drop a bunch of content and you can watch the whole thing right on my emergence Facebook page. Okay. Awesome. So I, I encourage people to go check that out. Um, so it's like, it's so weird that I, I've actually communicated with her before. That's wild. Um, yeah. And, um, she's an awesome woman. Yeah. So she, um, so a friend of mine, he was a Green Beret. He was medically retired. Um, he first deployed as a tanker to Iraq, and then he went to selection, had a couple of deployments, um, had a couple, I think it was he had some back issues, uh, so he was medically retired from the Army. But then he was, right before he got out, he was recruited to the HERO program. Um, and the HERO program is, uh, I don't know if it's only special operations veterans, but it's, it's they recruit veterans, uh, I think combat veterans, and... Um, what they do is they counter uh, child pornography. Uh, so basically, the, and he wrote an article for my website and I published it. And that's actually how I, f I ended up uh, getting in contact with her. Um, really? Yeah. So, uh, so basically, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I just, it's something personal I wanted to share with you, John. Um, this is all kind of recent for me, but doing that interview for Emily. And, and like I said, I'm not, being facetious, that's probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to listen to. Mm -hmm. And, but what really got me, you know, I've been doing the combat hunter, doing the deployments and, you know, people ask me that, you know, big, bad Marine. It's like, man, my deployments are over. You know, I sleep on a duvet now. Don't even know what it is, <laughs> but it's comfy. But, you know, thinking my wars are over, but I'll tell you what, man, this human trafficking thing has got me fired up and it's got me thinking about 20 different directions. You know, mm -hmm. I feel like I, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm getting back into war again because it's so depraved. It's oh, yeah. so horrible. And there's, listen to me, John, there's 20 years of combat vets sitting around looking for something to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, like uh, maybe a new branch of service because I join up in a heartbeat. Yeah. I mean, I, listen, I've, I've, uh, I've taken a peek behind the curtain of, um, 
you know what it looks like to counter that and it's fucking crazy and mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and before i get back to my story with emily i'll, sure. I'll just say yeah. um a buddy of mine was a he finished up as a uh, a lieutenant colonel at delta force um ranger special forces delta force been there done that shitload of combat experience like this dude is the real deal and um we were uh he was part of an organization i'm not going to name them uh, because he's no longer with that organization but essentially they were working to counter child sex trafficking here in the united states and um Mm -hmm. we were at a meeting at the world trade center uh and the it was an effort to get funding for this organization and um you know, at the meeting were a bunch of retired Delta Force guys. Um, and a lot of these dudes live and work in Manhattan as like bankers. It's, it's crazy. And um, when the yeah. meeting was over, you know, they presented the facts and the statistics. You know, they worked with, you know, local and federal law enforcement. And it is mind blowing how rampant. Uh, sex trafficking is in the United States. That, that's not even looking at what you know what's happening in Asia, Africa, and other places. Just here in the United States, it is unbelievable. And um, and I, and then we went to a bar after, and um, a bunch of the guys, the Delta Force guys who were there, who uh, were not part of the organization in any way, were talking about how angry they they were feeling, just learning Great. about how it was yeah. crazy, crazy. Mm-hmm. In, in like in what you said about the, the you know what what's happening in America it's right ha- happening in our affluent neighborhoods and our mm-hmm. white picket fences and mm-hmm. you go to foreign this this blew my mind talk about rage John so what you mentioned the politics involved with human trafficking is that the first thing some of these organizations do when it's an international one is they have to go talk and find out if they're going to even be allowed to operate in the country and I was like well what do you mean what what does that mean. He goes, we'll go approach a country that's a problem spot and we'll say, hey, we're, we, we're here to solve this problem. This is what we do. This is how we do it. doesn't cost you a thing. We're just here to save kids. And that country will be like, yeah, no, nah, we're good. Thanks, though. Yeah. And it's like, but we have this, that, and the other thing. It's like, no, nah, we're good. Thanks, mm-hmm. though. You're not allowed to cancel your visa. It's like, what on earth is why, – why on earth would you ever deny a service like that? You know? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, uh, and, um, and my buddy who I uh, had mentioned – uh, I sat down with him a couple months ago to interview him uh, on the topic, and um, this was around the time that the Jeffrey Epstein documentary had come out on Netflix, mm-hmm. uh, so that was sort of buzzing and people were talking about it. And uh, And he said that he's glad that that has come out and that more people are talking about it, but he said w- one of the, the potential negatives to that is that it leads people to believe that um, this sex trafficking is like done at the absolute highest levels of, of power and and not that it, it doesn't take place in some of those circles as as mm-hmm. you see with the Epstein and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. he said it's way more common on a sort of everyday average sort of American level with, mm-hmm. um, you know, yep. girls being pimped, uh, you know, with pimps and, and they're being prostituted yep. and stuff like that. Um, so that was one of the points he wanted to hammer was like, yeah, you know, there are some things that happen at, you know, these super rich f- people and they, and they engage in some of this stuff. But it, it happens on a more regular, everyday sort of American level mm-hmm. uh, than people understand. And, and that's really where the bulk of it takes place. Um, so so getting back to how I, I ended up communicating with her, with um, 
uh, Emily. Uh, so I posted this article written by my my friend who basically his job was to like go on the dark web and like try and track people who are downloading or creating or uh, spreading child pornography. And mm-hmm. um and he and it's it's an incredibly difficult job. I wouldn't be able to do it. Like I wouldn't be able to nope. watch nope. kids having sex. You know, I just nope. I wouldn't be able to do it. So God bless those people. I can yeah. never do it. I you, you and me have seen some foul things, John. I can't even wrap my head around that. Yeah, it's you know? it's I, I can't and um I'd so, be on the pointy end though. I'd, yeah, exactly. Uh, I'd be right. on the pointy end and mm-hmm. go have a spaghetti uh, spaghetti uh, dinner after. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so she reached out to me when I posted the article, uh, I posted it and then like, you know, put a small excerpt for on the Instagram with, you know, link in my bio, you can read the whole thing. And, and she reached out to me and we communicated and then I connected her to him and they, they communicated as well. And, uh, she sort of told me her story and I was just like, holy. And, but this was yeah. before, um, I'd made friends with the, uh, the other guy I'd mentioned. So I didn't know much about this at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was sort of my first sort of t- understanding of, of how some of that works. And she explained her story to me and I was like, what the fuck? And, yep. and it's so much more common than people think. It's crazy. That, that story happened 20 minutes down the street from me in one of the richest parts of Orange County, Irvine, California. Yeah. Um, nice affluent, you know, very white picket fence and it's right next door, you know. Yeah, and yeah, Emily's and, just trying. She's a shooter now, too. I mean, you know, I'd love, you know, I don't know, John, I'll send you the link, but I'd love for you to get that message out, that interview, because it's live and her message. Here's the thing with the, with the interview, John. She talked about not only we talked about pre event indicators, but she talked, she went into the culture of her upbringing mm-hmm. and like how things were so taboo. And so there's a whole layer of how to talk to your kids. Super yeah. hard to listen to what Emily's going to say, but she has gold where she's like, this is what you need to do to your kids. Uh, social media, you need to be invasive. You need to be like Stalin, okay? Yeah. And when it comes to soul, you need to be in their messages, not just monitoring or putting the thing. You need to be actively reading their messages yep. because these are these are horrible sexual pre- – these are super predators, John. They're apex predators. They have it down to a science. Yep. You know? if, if I can get – through Twitter, ISIS was recruiting Norwegian blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls. How does that work? You yeah. Know? It's a, it's a they do it and they they got it down to a science and the same things happening right in your kids you know bedroom at nighttime we we protect our kids from bullies and and we tell them to wear masks and we protect them from COVID and all that but when they shut that door at night you have no idea what's happening in your kids' phone. Yeah, and and you know like you said these guys have it down to a science these these guys are, are predators. Um, uh, you know they attack young girls. Mostly, I mean, the boys are affected by this as well, but I think young girls are, are the mostly targeted. Um, and, you know, they, they, they catch, you know, people in those teenage years or preteen years where, you know, you're you're sort of changing from a kid to kind of in between being an adult, right? And, uh, you know, n- now kids are getting curious. They're interested in being attractive and, and that kind of thing. And, and these guys take full advantage of that. And um, yep. a lot of times a, a girl will think she's just meeting somebody to go on a date or something like that. And, um, you know, but it's an older guy. And before she knows it, she's in a, in a situation that she can't get out of. And, and uh, 
she's being prostituted or, or something like that. And, um, and, uh, and it never starts out like that. You know, yeah. they're, they're so good with it. Now they have, look at what's her name. Jazane, Jazane, Jazane Maxwell, the mm-hmm. Epstein. Yep. She was a procurer. Yeah. So now, and then, and what's the other guy, um, the other billionaire who would have women brought up, actresses brought up to his hotel. He just got by Weinstein. Oh, Weinstein. You, know? yep, yep. you had, you had a, basically a cell, a fire team, a little department of people that were to move you along this path to get you to this person. So it doesn't start out with like, Hey, you want to have sex with an old rich guy? You know, it's never that right. it starts out with like, Hey, 12 year old kid, I bet you could use 50 bucks. I can Venmo you right now, you know, mm-hmm. tell 12 year old uh, kid, ten hundred dollars, whatever it is. So very effective, very scary stuff. And I don't know. I feel like I got my, a, a new war raging inside me. <laughs> yeah, man. And, and you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, these days there are a lot of uh, veteran-run organizations that are now um, go- targeting uh, sex traffickers, human traffickers. Um, uh, some are doing it. They focus, uh, you know, within the United States. Others focus outside of the United States. Um, I-, I think just recently, um, I-, I think it was the guy who founded uh, Operation Underground Railroad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he was a former agency guy. I, I don't know if he was a SEAL or something like that, but I think Baz? now that... You're talking about Baz? Basil? Is, that, is that his name? Is that his name? Hold on, let me see. Goatee, white hair. Um, I'm blanking out completely on his name. Let me yeah. see. Yeah, I just... Baz is one of the old agency guys. He's, I was on a... Recoil just did a um, webinar with us last week. I think it's that's out now, too. That's another great resource. I am the dumbest person in that room. They had Baz <laughs> on there and a couple of other people who who were doing the stuff we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually was all excited because I was going to give my profiling tips and all that. But Baz got on there and goes, "Hey, just so you guys know, you know, be careful what we share on here today because I guarantee you these these people in the enterprise and the human are sitting in the web and are listening, right? Uh, yeah. And he goes and they're taking notes. And I was like, oh shit, okay." Yeah. Well, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say. That. <laughs> well, right. Well, and 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 that's that's also a different kind of challenge, right? Um, so the the guy that I was thinking about, his name is Tim Ballard. Um, so he posted on Instagram. I mean, less than a day ago. Let's see. He says today was the grand opening of the Department of Homeland Security Center for yeah. Countering Human Trafficking. Um, Crickets. Yeah. Yep. Not a peep from anybody else. They had like uh, a half a reporter show up. Yeah, like you, you would think this would be all over the news, right? Um, no, no. Yeah. So, well, so since Trump has been in office, they have actually um, allocated more resources and have gone after uh, on a on a federal level. They've gone after more of these uh, trafficking rings and groups. So, you know, that's a step in the right direction. Um, but unfortunately, a, a lot of these traffickers and pimps. You know, they go to they may be convicted of something and they'll only do like a year in jail or two yep. years and, and they get out and they're right back at it. Um, so, yep. you know, that's there's uh, one of the one of the gentlemen on the on the on the um, on the podcast we did. Yeah, he had talked about uh, the recidivism and I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but people coming in and doing it all over again. He said he's been doing this, I think, 30 years now. He's done multiple interviews with these traffickers and these pedophiles in jail. So this is after they're caught and they're in jail. And I'm not saying this is the way. I'm just saying this is his opinion, his expertise. 
he's interviewed all these people and he goes almost to a person. He goes, what was the one thing that would have deterred you? What would have stopped you from doing what you did? And to a man, they're all telling the death penalty. They're like, yeah, if I would have known that, you know, I would have never, you know, I would have never done it, but there's no death penalty with it. And this guy's been doing that a lot of years. So I'm like, wow, that's an interesting piece of information. Well, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. Uh, we're talking about, you know, the Iranians. Um, you know, if if they think, or you know, same thing in the schoolyard with a bully. If he knows that he's going to slap you around and you're not going to do anything, he's going to keep doing it. But, you know, win or lose, if you turn around and, and punch him in the face, even if he he beats your ass afterwards, he's probably going to respect you a little more and he probably won't bully you anymore and and it's 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 kind of a similar uh you know mindset yeah i was i was in italy john with my my wife and mm -hmm. I, I use this analogy a lot and I, I i talk about when we're doing these observational behaviors and watching you know criminal acts and whatnot a lot of times these criminals they not all of them but these criminals act similar to hyena we all think of them as predators as the wolf but honestly, they, they, they re behave more like hyena. They're looking for an easy mark. Right. So we, we get on a subway. Right. Yeah. Target opportunity. So we get on a subway in Rome and like I'm all freaked out because of pickpockets because everyone you yeah. know, tells so, you, oh, you're going to get robbed, man. Yeah. Same thing when I went to Italy. People yeah. were like, bro, yeah. the fucking. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for, for it to go down. But what I found, this happened uh, twice, but one, it was pretty funny. I walk in. And I'm doing my scan and I obviously pick out the guy and it's not like I'm some behavioral expert. Some of these are pretty overt, like you were talking about the guy on the subway. And this guy is just kind of eyeballing everybody in the subway. Everybody's head down in the phone. This is the one guy with his head up and he's eyeballing everybody. So I kind of scooted next to my wife and I got, he hadn't looked at me yet, but I got to where I was going to be in his line of sight. So as he pans across the room, he catches eyes with me and I'm staring right at him and I sh I'm just shaking my head. No. And he like startles, his eyes go wide and he goes back to his phone. And uh, the second the, the doors open on the next stop, he gets off, you know, like, oh, that's right, guy. The second he all it took is eye contact and, you know, he ran away. So that's a whole other part of this is they don't have to be as scary as you, as you think they are, you know. Right. And and I've actually um I've ridden the, the subway in Rome before and it was like I, I didn't I kind of didn't like it. I mean, I'm used to like packed subway cars in New York, um, but I, I went from, I forget the neighborhood I was staying in, and then I, I hopped on the train and went to the Vatican. Mm, oh, yeah, yeah. It was super packed, and I'm like, yes. if, if someone's going to steal my fucking cell phone, this is the time to do it, you know? Mm-hmm, mm hmm yep. And all it takes is a little observation. You know, yeah. you don't have to be a ninja with, with the skills I teach. I don't know how many calls I get like, oh, you know, I've never been in the military. I was never in the age. I was like, you don't have to have any of that you know right do you if you go through a violent situation are you going to learn yeah hell yeah you're going to learn pain retains you know but we don't have to put everybody through these horrible violent situations where where guys like you and me we lost our friends for people to learn this stuff you know um you can definitely articulate it you know yeah and, and uh, a lot of things that are you know have been turned into a system uh like what you teach or or any other thing that uh, you know, a military unit specializes in a lot of that stuff just comes from humans living, you know, and, and yeah. experiencing and, yeah. and, and things like that. I mean, like, uh, you know, when you talk about smuggling, uh, you know, that's a skill set that, you know, intelligence agencies around the world 
are well versed in, but it's something that everyday people have done or 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 do or you know uh, for example like uh the uh you know during world war ii when um the jews were being rounded up um they developed the hasidic jewish community they developed uh the this crazy skill set of smuggling people and things in and out of countries and mm, uh, inter- oh interesting yeah <laughs> yeah and yeah they, you would no kidding yeah. They're people and, um, movers. They're logistics. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like uh, you know, it's it's a thing that people use as a survival tool or whatever and, and um and and that's a skill set that, you know, if you work at the fucking CIA, they you probably learn that, right? Or, or how to get in and out of places, right? Yeah. And and what's great, John, is when you show someone this stuff, I I'll be in class teaching my stuff. And again, none of this stuff is rocket science, but it's not common sense. But all it takes is someone to take your head and like show you one time and you're like, dude, look, and then one you can't unsee it. Talk about subways in New York. You know, humans are creatures of habit. We create habits and patterns all day, every day. We create these patterns because it's easy, John. You don't have to think about a pattern. So you tell me, John, being from New York, you ever had someone jump the subway uh, turnstile in front of you? Yeah. How'd that make you feel? Um. I mean, being from New York, <laughs> it's it's kind of like a a regular thing. So it's just like whatever. Okay. But that's okay. sort of my unique kind of New Yorker, right? So um, I'll, I'll go back to the study. What, I, what I'm going. This was like a while back, you know, like ten, fifteen years ago. And why um, people in New York were pissed because you guys were having a rash of those. Like yeah. everybody was jumping the turnstile, and yeah. people were getting pissed because it's like, dude, I paid my buck, you know. Well, right, right. Jumping the turnstile, you right. know. Uh, so people were starting to kind of bitch about it and NYPD was like, okay, okay, fine, fine. So they did uh, a task force, a plain clothes task force, and they started nabbing these guys. They started mm-hmm. grabbing these guys. The only crime was jumping a turnstile. You tell me, John, what type of people you, you, you think they start grabbing up? Well, right. They were, yeah. They're getting felons. felons. Yep. Mm-hmm. Guns, dope. People had absconded were from different States, all these major league, you know, criminals. And like, of course, NYPD's high five and like, yeah, we planned that. And yeah. it's like, no, no, you didn't. But, yeah. you know, habits, patterns. If I'm a drug dealer, if I'm a rapist, a criminal, what the hell do I care about a turnstile for? So that little behavior, that little innocuous behavior that might not seem a direct threat, if I was so empowered, I'd probably go tap that person's shoulder and go, what's up, bro? How are you doing today? <laughs> yeah. And it, it's funny you mention that um, because, I don't know, I, I was like, I don't know, 16 or something like that. And um it was during I don't I don't I think it was maybe on the Thanksgiving holiday break, so school was out. But I don't know if they still do this. But in those days, they used to give us uh, student metro cards that you can use during school hours. And um, so I used my student metro card at Fifty uh, Ninth Street. I used to go to high school in that area. Uh, but this this was during a holiday break, so school technically wasn't in. But I'm just using my metro card. I'm I'm traveling anyway, and I use it. And these officers they sort of like jumped on me immediately. Like, they didn't like physically jump on me, but they, you know they made contact. Yeah, um, you know, questioning me, searching me. I'm like, what the fuck's going on? Like I I literally didn't do anything, right? Um, mm-hmm. But they're like, oh, well, you're using a student metro card. I'm like, yeah, because I'm a student. Like, well, school's out, so you're not supposed to be using it. But I, I've always been a big kid. 
So they probably thought I was older than I actually was. Oh, got a, uh, an adult using a yeah. metro card. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I was always big. I always had facial hair. So they're probably like, oh, this, look at this scumbag right here. Right. So, um, <laughs> so beat up some metro, uh, some high schooler. Yeah. It's, he just beat up the high schooler, took his metro card. Right. So uh, my mom, for like 30 plus years, was a criminal defense lawyer in New York um, throughout oh, wow. the 80s and 90s. So when New York was really fucking bad, she, the mafia you know, yeah, crime, wow, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what's so then I asked her about it, and what she said was the reason why they go so hard nabbing people for hopping a train and stuff like that is because they catch an insane amount of felons and people that they're looking for mm-hmm. hopping a train. Yep. And yep. Uh, and you would think if you're actually smart, if you're on the run from the law or something like that. You would avoid doing stupid shit like that, you know. <laughs> You'd think, right? <laughs> You'd think, John. But we we love those patterns, my friend. Like, th- there's a there's a thing I read. You know, like in the first when you leave your home and if you're driving a car, like the first six or seven minutes, you you're driving in your car, you're not even fully like awake yet. You're not even mm. like fully conscious. Your brain is so on autopilot because you've been conditioned over and over. I mean, think about it, John. Like. You know, did, did, did guys wake up, you know, do you wake up in the morning and you're like, all right, I got to shave. All right, I'm going to shave in a completely different pattern than I did yesterday, you know. Right. No, we, we shave the same way we do. So even when it comes to criminal or terrorist attacks, uh, think about terrorists. You know, we just talked about criminals creating patterns. Terrorism, uh, let's go IEDs in Iraq. You know, you ever heard of someone burying IED in the same IED hole, you know? It's right. like we're, we're so hardwired to go to the patterns. That's a good thing for the good guys because all you got to do is spot one of these patterns and you disrupt it, whether it be situational awareness. Um, there's even smuggling indicators, you know. If I see someone padding or touching, especially their waist belt, look, I don't know if you have a gun or, or, or you know, a kilo of coke or a cell phone, but I do know whatever's on your belt there on your hip. You seem to be, you know, very attuned with you're, you're giving it a lot of attention. So I'm going to give it a lot of attention. You know? Right. So there's a there's a tons of information non-verbally flying around your head at any given moment. And I think someone said, you know, 60 to 65 percent of communication is non-verbal. Mm-hmm. So if you believe that number, you know, how much are you taking in on any given day when you're walking around? How much information? What are you giving out? What are you giving to the world with your nonverbals? Because we're 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 communicating a lot, but most times we don't know what we're communicating. Yeah, that, that's actually a great point. I, I feel like a lot of times people do things like, like if I'm walking right down the street, um, you know, I may have headphones in, I may have just one ear in, and then I have the other ear I, I can actually hear, and um, mm-hmm. and there will be times where someone might make like a quick movement near me. Or like, mm-hmm. just in my peripherals, like kind of behind me, mm-hmm. and I'll react like strongly. Like I'll turn around and like, mm-hmm. you know, and and they'll look like super surprised. And it's like, yep. Yep. It, it's you know, they, they're not necessarily doing something wrong. They just they have no uh, no concept of of how their behavior may how people may react to their behavior around them. And um, <laughs> usually that's like with a kid, you know, like. A, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you ride the subway during school, high schools are out and, and kids are just fucking stupid. So, um, you know, they're doing things like that and, and not paying attention to how people are reacting to, to, to them around them, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. I, I, you know, I still do law enforcement and EMS and fire. And I don't know if you've seen this, John, but it's a, it's a cool video. 
it happened in Portland. And I don't know the details of it, but it was a former army vet or former, uh, I guarantee he was a drill instructor, whatever service he was on. He was a drill instructor where the Portland protesters and Antifa roll up to his car that he's sitting in. Have you seen this? Mm, I'm not sure. Long story. They, they're tapping on his window, messing with him. He's, he looks like he's taking a nap. He's got a plate carrier on. I think he's security and he's taking a nap and they keep messing with his window. And finally one, one of the kids opens his car door and this five foot, Four meat missile comes flying out of the car. He does like a, a running leg sweep on the guy who grabbed his car. He puts him down. He doesn't hurt him. He doesn't hurt him. Puts him down and starts in that DI voice, you know, don't you ever touch a man's car and just goes nuts on him. There's probably 10 or 15 of his little protester buddies standing around just watching, just gawking. And this guy's just completely went limp. He tells him what he has to tell him. And he stands up, he gets back in his car and like goes back to sleep. <laughs> and like these 15 people just like wander away. They're talking crap the whole time. They're like, we got that on tape, bro. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. He did a little bit of violence, but I guarantee even if he didn't do that leg sweep, not one person in that crowd would have put a laid a finger on him. Right. So it's about the presence. It's about, and, and when you talk about you looking like looking at someone quickly, you know, when you do that, you're, you're making it apparent, even if the people don't realize it, you are the alpha in that room. You know, yes, I am looking at you uh, with eye contact, you know, like um, those Walmart greeters. You know, we think Walmart puts them up there to, for us to, you know, you know, be polite. There's that has nothing to do with it. They put those people to say hi to you because there's statistics that show if I do that, there's like a 60 percent reduction in theft in that Walmart. Right. And, you know, you think about it. I am someone standing there. You walk in, you're going to you're going to try to steal something. And I say, hey, brother, how you doing? And I look you directly in the eyes. You know, you're basically telling them, I see you, you know, we've all seen you, and that would deter crime 60% or theft anyway, so very powerful stuff. Right, because if, if you're trying to do something that someone or an organization or whatever it is, they may not, you know, you're opposing them in, in some way in your mm -hmm. action, you want to sort of be that gray man, right? You don't want to yes. be seen, you don't want people to pay attention to you. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I mentioned it before you're somewhere and, and you're, you're, you're there for a reason and you don't want anyone to know what that reason is. Mm -hmm. uh, so yep. you're, you're, you're masking your awareness, you're masking, you know, whatever it is you're doing, you, you, you try and make it seem like you don't know what the fuck's going on. Right. Yep. Um, and, and it's interesting to, to t talk about some of the protests and, and, uh, things you see with Antifa and, 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 uh, a lot of. I find some of it fascinating in a way because a lot of the, a lot of situations where uh, you know whoever these people are, you know, a lot of times they're masked and they have hoodies on, so you don't know who the fuck they are. But um, mm -hmm. they'll do things, and then there'll be a reaction, and they'll be fucking shocked that mm -hmm. this person responded with violence. Um, yep. Sort of the the situation in um, uh, in Kenosha is yep. a, a good example mm -hmm. of that. I think. Um, mm -hmm. you know, you have a guy with a rifle hanging down the front of his body. Um, what in, in your right mind, what would make you think it's a good idea to attack that guy? Right? Like, yeah, yeah. The guy with the gun, the guy with the, the large it, rifle. It's stupid idea. Know, their perspective is that guy, that person is evil, white supremacist, you know, mm -hmm. all these evil things. And he's standing there holding an AR-15 I'm not going to choose to go mesh with them. You know? Yeah, I don't want to fight I'm that a, guy. I'm, I'm a Second Amendment guy. I, I truly believe in our whole entire Constitution. 
But let's say if I was a cop and I roll up to a car that says like, you know, you can pry this out of my cold, dead hands. I'm going to believe what you're telling me. Yeah. I'm going to be like, Roger that there's probably a gun in this car. That doesn't mean you're a bad person, you know? Same thing. Don't fight the guy with a rifle. Yeah, just for your self preservation. Like, like maybe the the second or the second or third person he shot might have not understood (laughs) what was happening. But the first guy, he's definitely the guy died. You know, and you know, I don't want to make light of that or or, you know whatever. He has family, right? He's somebody's son or something. But Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty stupid thing to do. Like he chased him. Like you're running after a dude with a rifle, and and cursing at him and whatever he threw something at him and and then he uh skateboard and then there was a guy with a gun you know yeah and the I mean, guy with a gun yeah that guy that guy kills me man because he was he was safe man he was ollie ollie oxen free because he'd pointed a rifle at him and the hand kind of come down then it, he does something or he tries to load it or something that's when he popped him in the arm yeah. it's like yeah another never draw you can never outdraw someone who's drawn down on you already you're never gonna win that race yeah you know? and it just like uh, I, I think it was the maybe the guy with the skateboard. Um, yeah. Maybe he didn't understand what was happening because I know that he, he the kid shot the first guy and then he he starts running, and then it turns into like this mob mentality thing, right? Well, and there's oh, another get shooter that motherfucker. Too yeah, there's another shooter now too. Apparently, who was uh, uh, in the same area? Yeah, in the same area. The the alleged first gunshot that was fired wasn't from him. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it wasn't from him. Supposedly, I don't quote me on this. Someone's probably going to sue me for saying this, but (laughs) I think there's a a story where they confirmed there was another shooter, and allegedly that guy takes a shot, and that's where the kid thinks he's being shot at, reacts, Mm. and shoots the first person. That that person he shot was not shooting, as far as I understand, but there was another shot before that. Yeah, his lawyers released like a. They compiled like a bunch of video and and released like they edited it all up and sort of narrated what was happening, you know, minute by minute up until the. And I can't believe they showed that on TV, John. Because here's the big disconnect we've been talking about this this whole time, is that people freaked out when they saw that saw a guy get shot in the chest. Shot. You see, I don't know if you saw that guy's bicep turn into pink mist. You know, Mm -hmm. yeah, Uh, that's a high velocity round. Um, people saw that and they were enraged because they're not conditioned. They've never seen violence like that. Right. And like I like all those people who are just melting down. I'm like, you see that right there? What happened? Three people getting shot in the face. That was like Tuesday in Iraq. That oh, was yeah. like Monday morning. That was like before lunchtime. People were laid out. You know, I never understood that before I, I went on my tours, John. You know, even being a kid during the Iraq, whether the Gulf War, is I've heard that term before. Life is cheap. You know, mm. I never really understood that term till I got there where, right. where you, you know, can be snuffed out for nothing. Absolutely nothing. You know? Yeah. I mean, um, uh, I'm, I don't remember the name of this. Uh, it was a documentary. Uh, it was a bunch of Syrian kids from Raqqa. And um, for the people who don't know, Raqqa is, was sort of at the, at one point was sort of the, the capital of the ISIS caliphate. And, um, so, you know, at first, I think the people of Raqqa embraced ISIS because ISIS was a faction fighting against, um, Bashir al-Assad, the president of mm-hmm. Syria. Yeah. So they embraced him initially. All right. These guys are fighting against tyranny and blah, blah, blah. But, enemy of my enemy. Right. So then once 
ISIS set up shop in Raqqa, then they imposed their super strict interpretation of Islam. And and that means uh, men can't get haircuts, shave their beards. Um, you know, you can't listen to Western music, you know, all that crazy mm-hmm. shit. Um, mm-hmm. And women have to be accompanied by a male and, and this and that. And, um, and people started to resist or, or at yep. least they're like, okay, this is bullshit. I'm not, I'm not going with this. And, um, and then you see video. So what these, this group of, well, I guess they're men now, but maybe they were teenagers a couple of years ago. Um, they were filming what was happening in Raqqa and, um, mm-hmm. ISIS caught wind of it because they were posting it online and, and then they were playing this sort of game of cat and mouse where ISIS was looking for them but they couldn't quite get them and then they somehow escaped Raqqa and made it to Germany and, and um, they had this award winning documentary I can't remember the name of it but it's fascinating oh, I'm gonna find it uh, yeah it's, it's, it's interesting it. yeah I, I think I watched it on like Amazon Prime or something and um, mm-hmm. uh, and it just it it, it showed um how easily you can get killed and and mm-hmm. it, it, there was one video of this woman i for, she, i forgot what the fuck she did like she she didn't do, like whatever they killed her for was super minuscule like it was mm-hmm. nothing and yeah. and they lined her up in the town square and shot her in the back of the head and and mm-hmm. like she did nothing and they killed yeah. her and 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 they were doing this to show like if you resist and if you don't get on board with what we're doing, we're just going to fucking kill you. Like, that yep. easy. Yeah. How do you out-message that, John? How, yeah. how, how, how do we sprinkle democracy on that one? You know, we'll never yeah. out-message it. In my opinion, the only way you fight that is you take out the people doing it. Yeah, right. Well, there's there's some people who you, you just cannot reason with. And um, there's a time and place for diplomacy and and uh, working by, with, and through people and, and that kind of thing. And there's a time and place where you just have to shoot motherfuckers in the head, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, people like that, they, like, they're on that list of you just have to shoot these people. Um, and, and that's the only way to fix it. Um, there's a woman, uh, I can't, I don't even know where I heard this, but it was great, especially in our political climate right now. This applies to everything, but it was great. And it was talking about, like, you know, you run into someone, you you know, that is just, doesn't know what they're talking about and you're trying mm-hmm. to explain things with them and you're getting frustrated and you're getting yeah, mad because they don't the see it you know fast track uh, to a headache man yeah fast track and they and this lady uh said i don't know if it was, oh, man, it was i can't remember her name but she said look stop stop doing that you're, you're never going to win this fight you're never going to get um someone out of their logical position when they didn't use logic to get there mm-hmm. you know you're coming at someone with facts and, and articles, this, that, and the other thing and research, but they never got to their decision with logic. So you're never going to get, get them out of it. So whatever ISIS or these people come up with, that's just, you know, it's not a debate. It's not going to be a conversation, you know? Right. And, and there's, there's no way to talk them off of that ledge. I mean, um, there are programs now that uh, where they're trying to rehabilitate people who were members of ISIS or um, in some way supported it. And um, uh, there's actually, I think there are TV shows about it. Uh, they, yeah, there's, there's, I watched it. I watched uh, three, four episodes of it. Uh, I think it came out on Syrian TV, but yeah, it was yeah. following a group 
and it was especially good because I get to listen to an Arabic, mm-hmm. but it was literally had like the American ISIS transplant, the Canadian, the yeah. Arab, you know, the the Saudi Arabian that no one likes. You know, it was like Monday night TV, you know, but it was following ISIS around. Yeah. Yeah. And they, you know, sort of I sort of studied them a little bit. Um, you know, I read a couple of books, um, on, you know, some of the history. I known some about uh What's his name? Uh, Baghdadi. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And and what's the other guy? You mentioned him earlier. Uh, he was uh, killed. Zarqawi. In... Yeah, Zarqawi. Zarqawi. Mm-hmm. So who was Zar- a pimp in Syria before he was a holy roller? So right. not really their character. They literally. And I'm not just saying that he was a pimp in Syria, been arrested on, but now he's a holy roller for Islam. <laughs> right. Like like the line between gangster and terrorist is like non-existent, right? Um, and. You're seeing it right now. Like I have a problem with like moral ambiguity. You have all these woke people who are like, you know, you bring up any subject in someone's culture, you know, like female, you know, genital mutilation. And you have this segment of this population who goes, you know what? That's not my culture. That's not my country. And it's not my place to judge them. It's mm-hmm. like, eh, wrong. You're a human being. Absolutely your place to judge someone. There is yeah, we have culture and religion, but there's certain things you, you're not moral ambiguous about. Child right. rape, rape, uh, murder. You know, there's no culture. There's no argument. There's no debate I could have with you that you would ever change my mind. You know, maybe I'm the extremist, you know. Right. And 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 it's, um, you know, it's not about like imposing Western ideals on people no. or American ideals on people. Um you know what's wrong is wrong, and and, and wrong yeah, there's yep. some wiggle room there, you know, whatever. But when you're talking yep. about like murder and rape or yep. um, mutilating females, uh, you mm-hmm. know that a lot of that takes place in certain parts of Africa or, or yep. some parts of the Middle East, and um, it's very extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and spent a long time fighting bad people. And, you know, going back to what I was feeling about this, especially with the human trafficking, it's like, ooh, man, getting those dark feelings again. feel like I got to got to ride out in the sunset again. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, getting me, you're getting me amped up just talking. About well, look, I, I can um, I can introduce you to some people, man, and uh, uh, all veterans. Um, one of them, the, I think the guy who founded the organization, I'm not going to name them on the air. I'll, I'll tell you about it once once we're done. Um, yeah. He's a Marine Corps veteran. Uh, and then my buddy, who is a, a special missions guy, he's now working with him. Um, but he hasn't publicly came out and stated that he's left his previous organization and he's now working with his this new one. So I don't want to name names yet yeah. until he does that. Yeah, I, um, anything, anything you can steer my way, my friend, because I, I got I, I'm frothy at the mouth right now for this. And what's actually really interesting about the. Um, this the whole like human trafficking counter human trafficking uh i don't want to say industry but now there are several oh, it's groups. an industry well oh, right. it's an industry absolutely yeah um is you know you 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 hear oh we do counter human trafficking work or whatever counter sex trafficking work and you go okay that's noble that's respectable that's commendable i'm behind these guys but there it, it's it's like anything um, you have to do your research and and yeah. really look into some of these people. So uh, since the last couple of years, I've sort of learned about this and, and sort of 
uh, took a peek behind the curtain. I understand that not all human counter human trafficking organizations are the same. And, and yes. uh, yeah. some are a little shady and some you probably should stay away from, um, which is interesting because you would, you know, just on the surface, you hear, oh, we go after bad guys and break up networks. You're like, OK, I'm on board. But then you speak to people who are in that who live in that world. And they're like, actually, those guys are kind of funny. Um, mm-hmm. Check these dudes out instead, you know. So th- there's a lot of that, and I'm I'm happy to actually go over some of that with you, uh, you know. Absolutely, air. yeah, um, absolutely. I the the people I've been uh, talking to, they're doing active stuff on the ground, and and uh, that interview I did with him, Baz Basil Baz, look that name up. That's who was on there. He said some really strong. Is like everybody hears this message and they want to do something. They're like, oh, God, I want to help. I want to do something. So, you know, big yoked out special forces guy. Hey, I want to do something. And Baz will be like, all right, brother, cool. I need you to go in that women's clinic and uh, set up your appointment for a pap smear. And they're like, uh, and they're like, you see what I mean, man? Like, yeah. <laughs> we, we want to kick the door in, but it's like, nah, man, we need other people. So his advice was to look at what you have. Look at what your resources are. If you're military, if you've got a bunch of money, what are, and see where you fit in this right. big thing. Do you want to go after pornography on the internet? Great. That's a, there's a group for you. Do you want to send, you know, people physically into these clinics and pull these people out? Hey, that's real cool. I like that, you know, the standard, but he's even talking about some of the counter counter MS 13 organizations and his prediction, they have these facilities where they take the kids to when they save them. Mm. And, um, his prediction, which is horrible, he thinks in the next coming years, you're going to actually see these criminal organizations like MS-13 literally go to these facilities and do basically a hard raid, do a direct action mission and re-kidnap all the people and kill everybody at the facility. You know, he goes, that's, he goes, it's, it's going to happen in within a year or two. You're, you're going to start seeing it because they're getting more, they're being more effective. So they're getting more and more pushback. Mm, kind of so, like, um, like Caves Animal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keep keep fighting back, you know. So, I don't know. We got we got a couple caged animals on our side too. Yeah, exactly. So you know, and like obviously, you don't want something like that to happen. Um, no. But for some reason, we are very reactionary in our taking action or being assertive. So, like, if a situation like that does happen. I feel like then the gloves would come off, you know? And um, I mean, because like in, in Central and South America, MS-13 is like a fucking army, you know? Like like oh, they're yeah. not just it's a, a, state a gang. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah, with all the veterans. And again, you know, I want law and order and rule of law to, to win out. But just like one side of the extremists now have their, their extremists, you know, there's other people out there that are not as, you know, bolted down. So it's like you keep pushing. So it was it Mike Ritland talked about on his podcast. He was talking about Kenosha mm. and where he, the kid had killed their 17 year old kid had killed those people. And he goes, you got, you know, 17 year old kids out there, you know, often people. He goes, these people talking about defund the police. He goes, who do you think is protecting you from those people? He goes, yeah. you're, you're, you're trying to stop the last line of defense that you have, not us, you know. <laughs> Right, it's like there's there's a lot of people out there. So yeah, like you you don't want the the veteran community, you know, combat veterans, infantry, or special ops. Like you don't want these dudes to fucking snap. No, you know, you, you don't keep... you don't want them go all the way to the right. You know? Yeah, I mean, 
the the uh you know that would be over very quickly like these dudes are you know uh, you know like you mentioned before like just the levels of violence and destruction is like you you can't fathom it if you haven't been there yep. um and you, know. you know they're like and again i'm not condoning this i'm not saying this should happen i'm right. all for rule of law i'm just bringing up like People think it's going to be some Saving Private Ryan, Michael Bay movie when it's actually going to be probably more like Dexter, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, you got to watch this stuff, you know. And and that's and this another thing I talk about is binary thinking. That type of thinking, even on our side, John, is not good, man. That that leads to to all the stuff, all that bi- bad stuff you and me have seen before. So it's like I'm not being boastful. I'm not pumping my chest out like, oh, you better not do that. I'm like. More like, look, you really don't want to do this. Like, you, yeah. you have no idea what you're doing here, you know? Yeah, like, you know, if, if you knock on the fucking devil's door, like, eventually <laughs> he's going to answer, you know? Yeah, yeah um, and he's going to go open, turn on the floodlights and open those double doors wide open. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah man. So it was it was great having you on here. Um, you know, I, I appreciate uh, your perspective. I know the audience is going to appreciate it as well. Um before we get off, can you just drop your links again one more time so if anyone listening wants yeah. to check you out, they can? Sure, yeah. Uh, to all those people out there in the human trafficking world, I have 350 instructors ready to teach these behavioral domains. Um, so we have the instructor program. But again, just go to emergencedisrupt.com for our main website. Uh, go to the Threat Detection Group on Facebook. It's a free uh, group. It has about 10,000 people in it. I drop uh, free stuff in there all the time, and it's really great behavioral knowledge. And then finally, come find me on Instagram, uh, Yusuf Badu underscore emergence. Awesome. And can you just spell Yusuf Badu just for to make yeah, sure, sure. that you get the right? Yeah. Why? Why I got to spell that, John? What? Not normal? <laughs> <laughs> no. Y o u s e f b a d o u underscore emergence, and that's it's like emergency without the Y. E m e r g e n c. And to everybody else listening, yes, Yusuf is an Arab name. I am an Arab. Don't freak out on me. We'll get through this. <laughs> yeah. We'll figure it out, man. Yeah, we'll get to it. <laughs> All right. Awesome, man. So, again, you know, thank you uh, for coming on here. Uh, you know, all the stuff that you do with Emergence is fascinating. Um, it's something that I think people should really be uh, tuned up on and tuned into. Um, you know, if, if everyone is aware you know, then everyone as a collective would be safer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the criminals spend time trying to figure out how they can do things and, and where the weaknesses mm-hmm. are at. And if if we close the gap on on whatever weaknesses we have, then we would be better as a collective. So what you're doing is hugely important. Um, so again, thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you for doing what you're doing outside of the Marine Corps. And thank you for your service as well. No, thank you so much, John, for the opportunity. Um, This training, the message is so vital to get it out to your listeners. I I hope I've given you some usable information that your people can go use out there. And if this stuff interests you out there, if you're listening to this and you're going, hey, I want to know about that, you know, I ask you this question, you know, if I could ding you on the head and make you 50% more aware than you were yesterday, I bet everybody listening would take that 50%. But, you know, you cut it down. Let's say I can't do 50%. Let's say I can only do... 5% or 1%. Let's say, John, all I can do for your listeners is make them 1% more aware of their surroundings than were yesterday. I think that's a good day in in my book. So thanks again and uh, separate fire, bro.